0: Welcome to Making Good, a podcast about the people, products, ideas and initiatives doing the work the world needs now. My name is Lee Evans. This week I met with Duncan Baker Brown to discuss what architects and designers can and are doing with the knowledge that the built environment is comfortably the biggest single challenge, but also opportunity for confronting carbon driven climate change. Duncan is an architect, senior lecturer at University of Brighton, and author of the widely acclaimed Reuse Atlas, which explores how circular economy and construction can help us live within the resource limits of our planet. We recorded the conversation at the offices of BBM in the Sussex countryside, and began by talking about Duncan's involvement in the Architects Climate Action Network, which is trying to build on the recent spate of declarations of climate and ecological emergency by professional groups working in building and city design.
1: Hopefully it's just going to be called the Climate Action Network but it's called the Architects Climate Action Network mm-hmm. and uh, they've got a sort of launch event tomorrow in London they've asked me to um, speak at it but it's interesting, the other speakers are like a lawyer, an engineer I can't remember the third one, it was some in the Architects so I really think they need to drop the A and it's just CAN instead of ACAN um, just the Climate Action Network so it's a, um, a network of... Um, architects and others who feel like they've got a, an answer to uh, the climate and ecological emergency. That's within the context of architects and academic architects and practicing and academic architects both declaring
0: that, um, a climate and ecological emergency and also not only declaring it but saying what they're going to do about. Which is be the best one in the world. It's, everyone's watching now to see what yeah. How this actually translates into action, yeah. or if this if, is it actually a steer a, a thing, which in itself generates momentum, or is it something which which enables momentum to be dragged out of these actors when yeah. they don't deliver in the next twelve to what eighteen well, months? I mean,
1: in the construction industry, where we are at the moment, is uh, we've got big clients in effect who've declared NHS trusts, local authorities, uh, even big businesses. Um, we've, like I said, our, our practitioners have declared, uh, our academics have declared, and uh, but there's no legislation in detail. So we've got Parliament agreed, and actually I guess our government has a law now that says we're going to be carbon neutral by 2050. That's been
0: around for a while, hasn't it? Well,
1: well Theresa May is passing part parting shot too. Boris, but um, right, yeah, there was an ambition before, and now it's been yeah, an and in, now, now it's just in been been law. So, but no one's talking about it, and we don't have the mechanisms in place um, to allow that to happen. So that, so ha- what we actually do now to make that happen, I don't know. Uh,
0: and this is kind of the explicit agenda for
1: the um, for ACAN, yeah, straight, straight can. So we're looking at so in a way, it's starting off with. Uh, as far as I can see, the people are involved are people who are already part of that positive agenda and, come up with some, and people who come up with solutions uh, rather than... I mean what was really interesting and challenging back in June when architects declared is that they did it in a typical architects way which is they got this, the 17 sterling prize winners were the first signatories um, and then you look at some of those signatories, and these are people who are now working on the Heathrow expansion and airports around the world. So they can, you know, I wouldn't. I sort of, I'd be. I, it would sit easier with me with those people if, if, they declared a climate emergency and didn't sign in to what they were going to do about it, because you know they, they already are going to scupper any pla- any idea they might have had to be able to do anything. About it in the next ten or twenty years because of the big projects they have accepted to do.
0: It's one of the um, one of the questions I was going to come to, but may as well just drop it in. In now is whether this this group that you're clearly leading a figure in is it? I mean, discursively, it feels like it's mainstream now, becoming mainstream, and yeah. the you know the the, the government, uh, or the, uh, the Lord Mayor's um, Mayor of London's um, paper on. Um, uh, circular economy and your and your your brief response to that that you put out was the, the 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 moment that gave rise to me kind of reaching out to see if we could do this podcast now, but I guess there's a it, there's a question at least whether or not this. Kind of discursive centrality or increasingly central role in um, what we might call circular economy, non-linear, restorative approaches to the economy, all hedged very squarely in in like in the in the in the wake of um, the work extinction rebellion have done to at least raise, even if they weren't the first to at least to at least raise um, raise awareness, consciousness raising. But whether or not, in terms of um, deeds, there's actually is it in any meaningful sense mainstream or is it still really liminal? Like, is it is it in terms of what's actually happening, everyone's talking about it, so that's as mainstream as stream as it
1: is. So I think it's a, a debate; it's a um, that everybody's taking part, in, um, and I don't think you can avoid the debate. Um, the practising of it, as it were, the delivery of those intentions is something quite different. I think. So I think that a bit like a, a you know even a government minister at the moment would say we've got this commitment blah 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 moving on to Brexit uh, now it would be with our you know a lot of practitioners and yeah we've, we've signed up to it um, but that really what what the question is what, now what to do next and that's what that's um, a question that's out there all the time and at one level that's what I'm being asked
0: to contribute to a discussion of what to do next it have we got... Well, I guess there's two, two questions that are related. One is, um, is there a s- historical context for this process of change happening from one one way, of, one way of doing it? Oh, do you want your... Are you going to need to eat crisps through um, <laughs> your... Well, I wasn't going to eat crisps. Oh, sorry. I told him to go away like uh, some kind of little... Little Call him back. Tom? Sorry, Tom. I've been... I don't have the right to overrule lunch, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, edit <laughs> let's
1: just get this in I won't eat the crisps.
0: this the is right literally well. literally the, like, the the least podcasty um, no it's quite good I've done like, a podcast
1: in a canteen before
0: with crisps ok great yeah. ok oh, well this is Chris. this is only my second I'm a novice no, So, it's right. no. <laughs> um, I'm not yeah. <laughs> we'll just um, I'll just mute it while you um, I can do that is it muted it's not muted currently oh, but it, okay. it, it, it can be okay. um, well, no, let's carry, let's carry on talking for a bit. Where were you? Um, uh, is there. In terms of the change that's needed, do we have, any, um, have we got resources in the past, whether it's in-built environment or any other kind of social, economic change, where we can say, all right, there was a diagnosis of a problem, everyone started to talk about it, consciousness started to be raised, but these were the ways in which we actually started to get the, like, the really radical. In the absence of a war, which people often you know, refer, yeah. to, refer to as the, um, as the thing that previously allowed the kind of dramatic shifts that... Um, that, that well,
1: war has always been the mechanism for, to effect speedy, speedy change across all sectors um, and, but uh, yeah I mean the very relatively recent precedent is the um, the, uh, the um, uh, elimination of the greenhouse gases creating a, a, ho- a hole in our ozone so that that literally when we when my partner Ian and I first uh, did our first sort of eco project in 1994 that's what we were talking about the hole in the ozone and that's CFCs CFCs and HCFCs um, so that was, that's been broadly adhered to oh, it's interesting though there is a, there's, there's a bit of a hole above China uh, because of the amount of um, uh, CFCs and HCFCs used in uh, expanding foam uh, insulation because in, there's a mass uh, building program over a, I can't remember, a certain part of China and they've, they've located that as a source of HCFCs and CFCs so uh, that that's just reminds you that the construction industry has a huge impact on the planet. But broadly speaking, that was adhered to. And obviously, the climate change uh, Paris climate change agreement, um, uh, you know, is where people got together and and uh, decided to change things. With regard to the construction industry, um, while well in the nineteen eighties we went from an unregulated. Uh, sort of technical environment, no building regulations, really to building regulations overnight, which uh, completely changed the industry.
0: And what was the driver for, in that?
1: Um, things like road and point, the tower block collapsing at the end of the 60s. So that took a bit of time, if you think, well, about 15 years later, but um, yeah, it was to do with the um, uh, uh, the way buildings were being thrown up really quickly in the 60s and 70s to uh, replace, replace so-called slums and the uh, other construction systems there that just went up to the job and we're at that point again with Grenfell,
0: so... Well, I was going to just ask if that's not um, amongst... amongst all the changes that that, that shout out that need to come from... Um, from your fa- or a sequence of a process that's led up to to that horrific event is one of the positive outcomes that might be able to come from it, that we could start to think about how we're um, curtain walling, cladding, you know, the, yeah. the, the exteriors of buildings. Yeah. You know, I think, um, is it the Palais de Tokyo, the one in, um, I've seen in your presentations before? Oh, well, the, the,
1: the architects for the Palais de Tokyo also... Um, uh, Lacaton and Vassal, they have a, yeah, they were famous for at the Palais de Tokyo, inheriting a job off an architect after three quarters of the budget had been spent, but only a quarter of the work had been done. They then finished off the project. They did three quarters of the work with a quarter of the budget. And it did
0: come in still on. And,
1: and they were clever. But the other thing I think you're referring to is that um, they did they. Uh, they regenerated and uh, refurbished a a tower block that was due for demolition. So they went to the mayor and said, we can give you your new tower for two-thirds of the price of what you're prepared to pay. And the way they did that was literally to... um, With the tenants in the tower, by the way, they didn't have to leave. Uh, They just took the concrete cladding off the tower very carefully and replaced it with these uh, lovely, what what we call sort of winter gardens, so basically glazed pods, so they extended the flats and gave them uh, high levels of natural light, natural ventilation, and the new, the new uh, winter gardens created a layer of insulation as well. So these flats didn't need to be, didn't need to have lights on during the day like they had before. They, were, they didn't overheat in the summer and get too cold in the winter, etc., etc., all just because of a bit of clever design. So, I mean, that's what I'm an advocate for, is just designers using their designer minds to... Look at options because I mean, Grenfell is a you know, one level Grenfell Tower as an urban regeneration scheme, uh, and also a way of reducing the carbon footprint of that tower just to overclad it with insulation. But they did it as cheaply and nastily as possible, and, uh, and uh, for all the wrong reasons. So, um, yeah, but I, I um, for me, um, you know, we've had, we've had significant change, uh, every decade in terms of in the con- in, in construction industry, and so. Uh, from the point of view of you know, at the moment we're pretty we are pretty good as an industry in in creating buildings that don't consume a lot of energy compared with ten years ago, twenty years ago. So the energy issue in terms of consumption of in use is understood where it wasn't before.
0: So you would say that the building the planning consent process, it's, um, local regulations um, according to um, to national standards, has been a pretty successful lever of. Um, of improving the the process of designing buildings. I think from
1: the point of view of energy consumption it has and building regulations, which is the technical part of all of that, have have been successful. And what was what's been interesting is that part L, the energy part of the building regulations, has been regularly updated. Part B, fire eggs, hasn't until now. So that, that was that was one that's one of the controversial things is that part B is uh, there's been lobbying for it to be changed for a number of years and it hadn't been so then when something goes wrong like the grand Hill tower disaster then everyone's looking at building regulations mm. and wondering why they're not there now what we need for uh, to meet you know for example brighton hove's net zero carbon targets of for 2030 being net carbon zero is a complete overhaul of the building regulations because uh, you're talking about high, whole life costing, so the um, you know carbon associated with the design of something, the construction of something, the maintenance of something, as well as um, the uh, in use uh, energy use and carbon emissions. So, as well as uh, the predicted uh, carbon em- uh, emissions of the, the demolition or deconstruction of the thing. So, that's going to be a a whole new way
0: of looking at things so one one of the questions that i kind of prepared to come and ask i feel like we're kind of moving th- through quite quickly anyway towards an, an answer which is um who is it if we're going to achieve the change at scale that we need who is it that we we um um need to concentrate our energies on um on um, and transforming it i I'll admit, in my, as I was preparing for this, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about um, planning officers, but oh, whether no, it was yeah. more about de- developers or, um, or contract, main contractors, so on and so forth. But,
1: but No, the pl- planning department's a big deal, um, uh, because you can write things called supplementary planning documents, which basically enforce certain areas. Um, so... For example, we've got the national planning policy framework at the moment, which is rather broad brush as it sort of should be, and talks about sustainability in the first sentence. That's about five years old now. Um, but on the, you know, when you're on the ground in a particular city or region or whatever, you need the guidance to be really bespoke, and um, that's what's missing at the moment. So, how aspirations turn into um, the actual doing of something, a uh, planning policy. Is a huge leverage for that. I mean that until the uh, the Conservative Liberal coalition government, we had something called building uh, what was it called sustainable
0: code for, Co- for
1: sustainable homes, and that was great because a lot of planning approvals were only given if you achieved level five of the code, which was virtually off grid. You know, so there's a lot of mass housing schemes and one-off schemes and one-off housing mm-hmm. schemes where you've got these huge, you know, really high-performance buildings uh, because of a bit of planning legislation. Now that guideline was uh, dropped about two years ago, It must have been more than two years ago, about 2016 I think. That was uh, withdrawn because um, the central government naively thought building regulations were up to speed and would take the place of it, but those are all, that code for sustainable homes that that included issues like well being. Mm.
0: You know, it was a real humans. driver. One thing that about the I remember about the proposed follow up, and it's all gone very quiet on that front, was that there ought to be some kind of post occupancy evaluation yeah. that um, that fed into um, a contractor or a designer's rating that enabled that, that enabled them to be um, to be waited for future um, for future projects or future um, for yeah. future tenders yeah. which was um, which seems to be quite ambitious and certainly in my field of green infrastructure one of the things we suffer from is, um, is an absence of regulation of materials that then leads to um, to Suboptimal outcomes, putting it as generously as we as we can, <laughs> and actually going back and meeting up with um, meeting up with um, with the people who yeah. then occupied, not just develops but occupied those those buildings, seem like a great way of trying to lock in quality into the not as, not only the specification but also the delivery. Yeah,
1: well, there's something that the I mean the RIBA to their credit have focused on a lot lately, so. Um, you know, the current RIBA plan of work has the work stage 7, which is focusing on post-occupancy evaluation. Uh, at another level, which might sound sort of superficial, but it does, it is a big deal, um, our architectural awards are asking for um, the POE uh, stats uh, to just be shortlisted for award an award now. So um, the RIBA awards a sterling prize, and... Um, there's others like the architecture and all the as well. They do a retrofit award. They all ask for post-occupancy evaluation and feedback. So, um, and that is, that is really important because yeah, that information needs to be shared uh, yeah. because that's how we learn. We learn from our mistakes and we've learned from our accidental... Uh, successes
0: <laughs> On, and an honest appraisal from the people who are at the bun- of what, yeah at, at, you know at the, in in these buildings that are that are living living the reality of the abstract I- ideas it seems to me to be central to um to to how we go forward there's another uh, i've I've recently launched um an LLP um a consultancy with a colleague of mine who's um a human nature partnership so trying to help um, occupants of buildings who are downstream of decisions to invest in biophilic design, in green infrastructure, green envelope, um, the um, the abstract um, adding on of um, the uh, the abstract idea of adding nature into buildings in order in order to achieve benefits to actually link them up with those benefits, so to help people achieve um, or. Um, engage with nature in a way which understand what they've got and realize the um, you know real crystallize for them live live out the benefits of nature for itself in these in these spaces and coming up with um, with a toolkit for post, both both post occupancy evaluation but also how to I'm really inst- intrigued by this idea that's became quite faddish in recent years of forest bathing yeah, yeah. there 's something in the experience of um, of knowing that you have plants within and without both performing a function in terms of the techniques of the building yeah, if you like yeah. the cooling the um, the adding of thermal mass the um, but also you know the what we might call softer stuff like adding um, adding uh, crawl space for, um, for for insects on the roof adding adding food sources when the plants are flowering where you 've got um, Bat bricks installed, understanding the flight patterns and what role these um, these places play, and at a landscape scale, you know, um, talking about how small interventions can help um, are genuinely making a contribution to the ecology of a of a wider area than just the footprint of your um, of your house. And it's the, the post occupancy valuation is absolutely central to working yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, well,
1: it, I mean, unfortunately, uh, you see it as the opposite. Uh, when you see buildings that have been left alone for a bit, they might be working quite well. But someone decides to refurbish Refurbish them, I've seen it where, where I live in Lewis, where you know one building was supporting annually about 25 swifts being born and bred. You know, and then they've got the new, uh, they've, it's been refurbished and they put in the human-made swift boxes, nests. Well, I've never seen the Swift go back there. So that, you know that's quite that's that was quite. I mean, Lewis is among other, but you know, we, Lewis is. If you live in Lewis, you, uh, the Swips are an amazing addition to the the town. The way they sort of sc- screech down the high street, hmm. absolutely joyfully showing off what they can do, and uh, it, there has just because of that development, I've noticed the population off. We'll drop off. That's interesting. Um, and so it, it is so so fragile where we are at the moment in terms of uh, living in, in harmony or not with. The natural one, so it just needs to be constantly
0: brought to the fore and um, people's attention. There's um, in terms of all of these, or any any of the efforts that we've um, that we've broached so far uh, about who to address, what to. Um, there's a real lag, isn't there, in terms of um, decisions made now and when the actually outcomes are going to start to be. Um, when they track through different specifications in buildings different um different well, yeah
1: i mean but architecture is slow so if someone gets planning approval this year for a massive you know, say 500 home or more scheme on the outskirts of oxford or somewhere um that's gonna take another couple of years to get building regulations approval or maybe a year and then it's going to take four five years to build it have no bearing on any regulations that are going to be put in place to meet net carbon zero standards so that will be built pretty much uh, where the committee for climate change says we run out of time so even though in terms of um, you know the tipping, tipping point so uh, yeah it's I mean we've, we've got to roll up our sleeves and get on with it but I think that there's going to be a certain amount of um, and this is, this is where I'm going to sound a bit naive, but I think to make it all work, to meet the sort of deadlines that the UN and others and the <coughs> International Plan for Climate Change, those, those organisations are saying the deadlines that we've got, there's going to have to be some pretty big schemes and, and big clients, whether it's central government, local government, whatever, who just get on with it anyway without the legislation. Otherwise, we we'd completely miss... Uh, uh, our targets because um, and that, that's why I, sort of, I can't believe that a city like Brighton Hove City Council and other cities around Birmingham and others have declared um, uh, that they want to be net carbon zero by 2030 because they understand the slowness of stuff so that's, that's a decade away so I'm not sure how they're going to, what they not sure what they think they're doing to be honest yeah 2050 if you really understand the challenge 2050 soon enough but um, um, we just got to—if that's—we're going to that's, do it by twenty third. We just got to sort of stop. <laughs> can't do any development, can because you know it's, whatever it, you put in
0: place, it's huge. I mean, that brings me on a little bit to the um, to the book um, to your um, to your um, to your reuse atlas that was published last year, two years ago. Two years ago. The um, can you break it down a little bit um, for the um, for the listeners? So there's um, there's I guess there's a question of the of the why um to some extent um blindingly obvious but i've i i remember being really powerfully um affected by some of the statistics that you've that you've um, that you've now uh, um one or two of the um the talks that i've that i've heard the one that struck me in particular was the forty percent of um forty percent of carbon in the um in the uk is produced by um by the Built environment, but did yeah. is that, is that include the operating?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's about forty-five percent of carbon emissions um, in the UK. It's also about that around the world, for one reason or another, uh, comes as a um, uh, well, yeah, comes as a sort of a, from the construction or the built environment say and that's that's if you think of the the designing of it, the uh, the construction of it, the inhabiting of it, the maintaining of it, refurbishing it. And then the demolishing of it, and it's a sim- And it's a similar amount of um, around the world. Uh, you have fifty percent of all raw materials mined, harvested, whatever, a year. You know, half of it goes towards that. So the rest goes to roads, and other industries, and things. But um, and in the UK, uh, in terms of the amount, you know, waste streams, sixty percent of our waste is construction waste. So. 120 million tonnes of our waste is construction waste, and that's annual. Annually, and you'll get um, uh, build, you know, mass house builders saying they don't create any waste. there's zero waste because everything was uh, system built in a factory, so they don't create any waste. But they're not thinking of the demolition, the stuff that gets thrown away on site, etc., etc. So we're in a in the, in the UK at the moment. Uh,
0: for every six to seven houses built, one house worth of waste goes to incineration. or that It's terrifying the numbers when you um, when you when you see them. So you were working in this area already, weren't you? In um, uh, for many years in the yeah. in the run up to. Can you talk a little bit about your journey to um, to the kind of the condensing of your ideas in the in the reuse? <laughs> yeah, I mean. Uh,
1: um I can be quick about it but it did start a long time ago <laughs> because
0: yes, it's a t- stronger man than I I can't be well, quick about anything
1: <laughs> i really I mean really when I, was, when I was young when I was a teenager I, I was either wanting to work for Greenpeace or be an architect and that was because I lived in the countryside in um, just between North East London and uh, West Essex so Epping oh. Forest area and when I was really young when I was eight um, I went to, I was on a walk in a lovely field going walking up the, the slope and thinking I was going into deep countryside with my mother and then I look, came to the brow of the hill and looked over there and I saw something in the distance I said mum what's that and she said that's London I'm like, oh my god that's really scary I could see the West Tower and um, and then we had this discussion and my mum just said to me honestly, I'm only eight she just said she thought the only natural world in the future would be the National parks everything else would be consumed. So I got pretty aware of uh, how fragile the natural world was then. And fast forward to the 1990s, uh, I'd worked for an architect. uh, I'd worked for architects in the 80s, part-time while I studied. And I found myself working on a a kitchen worth 100,000 pounds. It was the second kitchen for this person's house. And uh, it was in 1988. And I remember thinking, what on earth am I doing? Uh, I need uh, you know, the environment to be saved so um, I then focused my, I went full time with my studies postgraduate studies and focused on sustainable design in Brighton and then um, within a year or so of graduating from that my now partner and I we won a competition to design the house of the future which we built and it was a sustainable off-grid house of the future So from about 1990, really, I've been focusing on sustainable solutions.
0: And when did you first come across the concept of circular economy?
1: Closed-loop systems? Ah, Well, that would have been um, in the 90s. And at that time, um, the the main proponents of um, protagonists, as it were, for the circular economy, uh, Professor um, Michael Braungart and Walter Stahl, at the time they were... Uh, you're sort of sparring as it were at conferences presenting papers around uh, the, in, uh, the circular economy uh, and this idea of cradle to cradle um, so that was in the background and um, but in the foreground for me um, was this idea of closed loop systems and trying to get um, the sort of built human uh, yeah, the built human world as it were um, to um, sort of behave like the natural world. And, you know, in the natural world, there is no waste. One waste from one ecosystem is, is food and resources for another ecosystem. And uh, so right from the beginning, it was, it was about resource systems, really, and looking at creating buildings that are material stores for the future. Um, we pretty quickly didn't focus too much on the energy low energy um, argument because a lot of people were doing that so um, the crunching of numbers and the sort of ways of uh, approaches to building like Passive House and that we let other people do that and really from mid-90s onwards we were uh, thinking a bit more strategically and thinking around material sources as well, so thinking about where materials come from and where they end up and in the early no, sorry. Mid, mid, what was it? Nineteen ninety-seven. Uh, we put together a consortium which ultimately won the Grange Millennium Village competition. And we were we being BBM, my partner and I in BBM. We were the um, sort of sustainability consultants for that. So we were looking at urban sustainability and urban um, and what that would be. so uh, introducing natural systems into cities so what was really exciting is one, we won the competition but two, the first thing that we built the, the, the Greenwich Peninsula was wetlands and um, we just we were really excited because that literally happened within a year of winning the competition the wetlands were being built and then we built the uh, housing and schools and stuff around that but uh, yeah, that was 1999, 2000 and um, we, we, along with the, most of the rest of the original design team we were sort of ejected <laughs> and the normal people took over and that's what it had been for uh, sort of what it was like in those days. We'd be asked to lead consortia to win competitions. And then thanks, thanks for that, moving on. But we, you know, we were only in our late, late 20s, early 30s then. So it, it was amazing because my partner was chair, uh, chairperson or chair of, um, what was it called? The Innovation Task Force for the Grenchman Millennium Village. And he was 28, 29 years old. And that was a task force set up by John Prescott MP. Do
0: you attribute the, the the early successes and the and the ongoing um, ongoing advances that you've had to the to the story somehow that's embedded? I've always been struck um, from the outside about um, about BBM and the work that that, that you've presented on as having. Um, Unlike you have a story, um, a narrative about um, yeah. about about that there is a different way, something that something that offers hope to people, but which is also grounded in science. Of course, Brown, uh, Michael. Um uh, oh. Brown was um, was a scientist yeah, it was Kenneth, right. for years, yeah, was so, chemist, Greenpeace Chemist for twenty five years. So, all of this is grounded in um, in empirical evidence. Yeah, it's grounded yeah. in science, but it's also grounded in something which I feel like we're crying out for at the end. You know, what, late modernity, mm. that kind of that that violent separation that we have from the natural world and from something um, something that connects us. Well, a way of connecting ourselves to something to something higher. Do you feel like there's something in this work that you've been doing around um, circular economy, restorative um, manufacturing? Oh, also? definitely. I mean, uh, for me,
1: um, for for me, it's. Um, I think it does. It is because of where I come from. I mean, uh, uh, you know, I come from Epping Forest, and Epping Forest, by all accounts, shouldn't exist. So, you know, this is a forest that exists now. And you can go to Walthamstow, East End of London, and see Epping Forest, and it goes from there out north northeast of London, and it was it's been protected since Henry II, so 13th century, and it's been used as a resource uh, for shipbuilding, etc. Uh, and it's one of our ancient woodlands, and I knew that from a really early age. so I knew humans could coexist, um, and of course we, we were made very well aware of the Greenbelt as well. So. And the value of that surrounding London, and like I said, from an early age, how lucky we were. But at, at a young age, I also saw the M11 and then the M25 plough through that that forest, that countryside, and I could see it literally from my house over across the valley. The M M20, uh, M11 it was then, and um, you know the, the Patsenford Bridge, which is, was this lovely little bit of countryside where my grandfather proposed to my grandmother. Is an interchange now, you know, right near some amazing countryside that still exists so uh, i was always aware of the fragility of that and that's what i've brought to the work i think and you yeah, know from an optimist you know point of view of an optimist um, mm-hmm. you know it's always amazed me that um you've got uh industrial state estates that are um or industrial areas that are sort of uh derelict perhaps where well, the natural world just crawl straight in and the biodiversity around Chernobyl for example is amazing so um you know for me I'm an eternal optimist and I do and I, I come from the point of view that yeah humans might destroy ourselves but we're not going to destroy the planet it's just gonna we're just a sort of minor irritant at the moment a blink, blink of an eye really so uh but I I also have a lot of um positivity around humans resourcefulness to get out the pickle and I think that's sort of where we are at the moment so for me it's really exciting it's a sort of a, a time I've been waiting to happen for 25 years it was, was interesting because in the mid to late 90s there was a lot around the environment and um, our, our work on a lot of um, attention um, but in the sort of really slow to respond UK and other Regions, uh, construction industries. It wasn't going to get any traction, really. Like I said, we were just um, saying the right things. Uh, politicians heard the right things, and then we would get selected for big projects. And then, once
0: selected, we get ejected from them. You know. So, They've, the narrative, the narrative of closed loop of being um, of being restorative, of not taking more than the earth can um, earth can bear. What, what's really lovely about it is that there is that that connection with finite quantities with but also with human ingenuity it, mm. it, it 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 kind of demands that we be better but it gives you the possibility to feel like you can be it's not abnegation it's not deny it's not denying ourselves um, it's it's harmony and coexistence which yeah. okay we're living through we've lived through 40 years of a of a kind of a social experiment which seeks to make um, understand human life and interactions in a kind of really narrow, um, narrow way about rationality, efficiency mm. and, um, and, and profit and, and so on but I think for, um, for many people and, and, not, and many people who work within the kinds of organisations that have promoted that way of thinking there's definitely a sense in which this is a, this is a um, right, it has a pull Mm-hmm. So you don't. You don't. You don't need to push this. Whether or not, and I guess it's a different question. Whether or not you can, um, we can. We can trust that this will be enough to drive um, decisions about um, planning policy at national or even or even local levels. There does seem to me to be something, and I was really struck in in the book when you talk about the benefit of closed loop that companies can start to see this like this rootedness in science and rootedness in um, in. Um, In uh, in 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 empirics, it has a kind of a um, it has a a, how to say what's the phrase I'm looking for Um, a counterpart in um, in a kind of a a business rationality.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, for me, I I mean, uh, for me, uh, at the moment, the 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 concepts are associated with the circular economy of uh, the cavalry that's charged over them over the hill to. Save sustainable development, um, or sustainable design, or sustainability, because that's been so uh, such a mal- badly used um, term. And, it, and and I agree with uh, Michael Browngart on this. He says that sustainability has been a sort of stick to beat yourself with. You know, it's, it's just been all about targets that you may or may not reach, and it's about sustainability has been interpreted as being less mm-hmm. bad.
0: Relates to um, to cradle to cradle um, and um, and and some of your other inspirations is a conversation with those books in some ways.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's how I build the reuse atlas. It is a sort of response to Brown Garden uh, McDonough's uh, Cradle to Cradle book from 2002. That was subtitled uh, Remaking the way we do things the way we make things, and um, in that book they they sort of proffer this idea that sustainability um, has been sort of corrupted as an idea to such an extent that what it, all it does is make us feel guilty because it's been all about achieving targets, whether it's reducing your consumption of something by 10% or 100% or everything in between, you don't meet the target, you feel bad about it, blah, blah, blah and uh, it's sort of tarnished as well because a lot of people use the, use the terminology for different ends. Um, Braungart's position is that um, what we need to be doing is not doing something bad less often, just not doing something bad at all, actually, and that's why the book, his book's uh, subtitled Remaking, way we make things it's we've got to think again he does cite a really uh, interesting precedent actually in the 1930s in the big credit crash in the united states um the ford um uh, production line motor company production line uh went from a const- uh, went from a, 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 a the making of cars to the deconstruction of cars, so you could, uh, if you couldn't afford to run your Model T anymore, you could take it back to Ford, and, forth and they'd, de- they'd pull it apart for you and, and uh, create new cars out of those old cars. So he cites that as an uh, example. So yeah, what, what he's talking about is this idea of a circular economy, so that's the opposite of the way we exist at the moment. The way we exist at the moment is a linear economy where we take materials and make them into things and use them for seconds or minutes or years or months, whatever, but then we throw this thing away. At the end of its life, it's useless. In the natural world, there's no such thing as waste. There's no such thing as useless things. Everything is a a waste from one ecology, is a resource for another. But with that in mind, Braungart also says that Re- you know, recycling and reuse of material is, at the moment, only it's a waste of time. You're delaying the inevitable. So, for plastic, for example, just because you recycle it and reuse it again and again and again, it's going to end up in our oceans because we don't. We, we we're still a linear economy. So, what I wanted to do with, I thought there's a, a huge gulf between brown Gart's cradle to cradle um, aspirations and the way we are today and I think, I think there is some merit in recycling and reusing stuff and that merit, especially in recycling which is the, uh, the most straightforward thing to do is in, at uh, the moment, for example if we clean up our oceans because we're going to re- you know, recycle that plastic maybe that's a good thing so I think where there's some environmental cleansing being done or cleaning to be, uh, to be done, I think recycling's got a um, is the um, you know, viable thing but in my book it's the first of four steps towards proper closed loop circular economy stuff and it's only a basic step because if you recycle material there's a lot
0: you you, you create more waste it degrades you, you, over time and it,
1: yeah but also yeah also uh, you consume energy you create pollution and yeah from the point of view of the value of the material it's not often uh, apart from actually
0: with plastics it's not often as good as the real thing so um, and it's one of the issues as well in terms of built environment with, um, well, we, um, uh, proven, well, maybe I'm jumping ahead, no, into no, material well, passports. Well, well, in the sense well, of yeah. it, and knowing it's performance. The other thing as a designer, perform- you know,
1: people do like secondhand stuff. If you think of uh, Georgian or Victorian bricks or old timber, you know, people like materials to arrive on site or in their buildings or wherever. With this sense of a sort of a narrative, a heri- yeah, but also heritage and uh, a narrative and a story behind. I got the, this material from where now if you recycle it, you lose a, all all idea of that.
0: Reuse is where you don't mm-hmm. smash it. So embeds else. it embeds the the, um, the kind of the chronological value that that object accrued yeah. over also decades or centuries of
1: stories. You know, Charles Dickens touched this bit of timber that's now in my bedroom, or whatever it is. You see, so you've got this link to the past so that 's where reuse one of the reasons reuse is a lot more preferable to recycling uh, it 's got a smaller carbon footprint normally, and um, yeah, you use less resources
0: um, uh, when you reuse them when you recycle. Could I ask you before you yeah. go on to the to the next point? one of the things that i 've been interested in recently is um, Obviously we both know um, Cat Fletcher Brian yeah. and Hoves Reuse um, Ambassador and, um, and the founder Of um, Freegal Co-founder one of the things through knowing cat and also then through seeing um, some um, some friends setting up a um, uh, an, an organization which seeks to divert um, single use athletics where you know finishes oh, yeah. teas from marathons um, trainers which are um, which are thrown away before their um, before their, um, their, their their end of u- um, their use yeah um, useful life, life useful life um, that 's called rerun an organization out of um, out of Shoreham one of the um one of the things that i've noticed is that there's a a significant logistical dimension to um to reuse which is both um space and time yeah and i'm wondering if um, if those can be is there is there is there something to be said for um for thinking up ways of thinking about the way that we 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 make space available socially but specifically um, try to use um people's Socially available labour time, we might say, without wanting to sound too much like a like a Marxist, but is there something in um, in um, um, in a, a changing economy in the twenty first century that could allow? what's the name of the um the German word for the um for the women in um in after the blitz in Germany who sorted the bricks <laughs> I don't know Trummelfrau yeah, it's um, it was really beautiful was sorry, it's a, yeah. such a beautiful idea for those listeners that haven't um haven't come across this there's, there's um while the men German men were away fighting during the second world war um um, groups of women were organised by the by the state by the city authorities to um, to salvage bricks from uh, yeah. from from bomb sites to, um, to for, for for reuse. There's something in it. There are many layers of meaning in that um, in that experience. But what it does speak to is um, is um, are we as we're changing? You know, one of the opportunities perhaps that um, that, um, that um, concerns about um, about technology. Um, um, creating, you know, universal basic income is, um, is, a, is a policy response to um, a, pol- a policy proposal which is a response to the idea that people are going to have less to do because robots are going to do yeah. be doing them there's a really interesting chap who writes for Bloomberg, who I um, follow on Twitter, who is who's, um, insisting that it's um, it's it's a real misnomer that there's going to be a lot of um, uh, labour time available um, as a result of automation. This is um, it's, which is a, an interesting counterpoint to what what seems intuitive. But I think there's a real opportunity um, to rethink, to, to take this opportunity of increasing automa- automation, to think through the way in which we um, we all work. So in my field, green infrastructure, taking care of plants, in your field, um, how do we think about um, dismantling and making available in ways which don't cripple the economy or which aren't, um, which aren't um, financially um, difficult? To well, bring it back to my book. The reason
1: for writing the book was to show examples of uh, delivered projects that use either recycling or reuse or reduce so you're not using as much material as normally. And out of that, a number of case studies, and I did quite long in-depth interviews with a number of people, but some of the case studies are where people are literally dismantling, deconstructing buildings that would normally get uh, demolished. And they have the warehouses to store the material. They have the digital platforms to advertise the material. And so they're selling the material. So there there are people doing this. and. Um, Yeah, you've got to say mainly in places like the Netherlands and Denmark and France Um, but it's you know we've got a heritage of doing it here we've got Salvo still existing in the UK and they've been going since 1990 Um, and there's uh, Retruvius as well who've been doing this so and there are other networks emerging but it's going to take for me within the construction industry it's going to take the big major uh, Wilmot Dixons Wimpy's, people like that to do this properly and um, because this is the world I'm immersed in you know, I was at um, what was billed as the construction industry's first conference on uh, the circular economy this year, this year and you've got a massive company like Murphy showing how they are deconstructing buildings and reconstructing them on other parts of the other, other sites within the company and they're, if they've got um, and this is a big company that does large infrastructure projects, excess um, aggregates on one uh, site have supplied material to another one of their sites so um, the idea that contractors, large contractors soon will swap uh, um, spare material or uh, re- you know, for reuse amongst themselves I think is a reality and that's just a, maybe an existing already uh, digital platform or not but you're right if you're deconstructing um, a, a building and you don't have a client for the material, you need, you need a warehouse size to But we have these sorts of things at the moment. You know, Amazon does it. There, there is that sort of infrastructure. We have a precedent for that sort of infra- infrastructure. Remember, you're talking about um, an industry that consumes pretty much 50% of stuff mined every year. So that's on a par with the amount of material that Amazon, for example, hmm. consumes or profits. So I think the infrastructure to facilitate the careful deconstruction of things for reuse in the construction industry is just going' it's pro- it's probably already there. it's just not been utilized. Um, and it's not the biggest big deal to implement. it's, it's around. It's just, it just needs the industry to be pushed slightly in the right direction. And that right direction can be cities, NHS trusts, etc that have all declared they're going to be net carbon zero by. In a decade by 2030, because um, it's, low, it's sort of low lying fruit in the way the construction industry to, to um, you know, deconstruct instead of demolish buildings. Uh, if, you've got to, if you've got to get rid of the building or, or reuse uh, or reuse it, um, you're going to save. The, you're, sorry, if you're going to reuse instead of demolish, then you're going to reduce a carbon footprint, and that's what the cities are looking for. That's yep. what they. Uh, whether it's city mayors or or, or councils or, or the full-time council officers, that's what they're looking for now. How ways to do that so the construction industry can be, uh, you know, can help them halfway along to reducing their carbon footprint just by slightly changing the way we go about
0: things. I do wonder if there's um, not some scope to think about this when you think about the market that's possible um, for. Um, For reusing, for um, the the smooth transfer, um, valuing, storing, and transferring of um, of materials for reuse at scale and across, you know, taking the Murphy's example across across enlarged enlarged areas, regional areas, you might you might think of. I do wonder if. One of the in, one of the really interesting developments I've seen in um, in um, in environmentalism, although it may be only obliquely um, seen as that, and certainly the company don't advertise in those terms, is, um, in, in, is Citymapper so city of instead of like uber um investing in um creating an infrastructure to actually do the delivering of people yeah. they've set up um, a means of harvesting data about the way in which people move around um, right. move around cities and as an app i think it's unparalleled yeah. in its um, in its functioning and and they did have they had um first iteration of their intervention in in transit itself by um by Identifying in um, in London some areas which were um, which were not served well by the existing combination of public and private um, you know um, not for profit and for profit um, infrastructure, and so they had I think was it Hackney to Aldgate they had some they started running taxis. And it worked a little bit along the lines of Uber Pool in the sense that you were to put in a request for a booking. I only used it once. You go to meet, you go to a meeting point, and then there were a couple of other people that were also at the meeting point, right? So it just it's running on a loop, but kind of on de, on demand. Um, but if you look, if you look ahead to who they're, who, how do how do you monetize and and, um, and scale the impact of something like that? well, you're all all operating in cities? In cities, the density of the um, of the stakeholders, of the users of the of the app I mean that it's this is something which tends to be um, uh, is going to tend to be in in um, in metropolises. Those metropolises are all um, uh, run by elected mayors who are accountable, ultimately, to the people using... And the the efficiency of the way in which people move around is... um I mean, it's business critical for um, for, um, for for the mayor. So I feel like there's um, there's a chance increasingly for these um, for an organi- a company like Citymapper to integrate themselves into um, into the places where they really add value mm. at, at a policy level. Yeah, yeah. Now I wonder if there's and um, I know there are iterations of um, of, um, of of reuse facilities of, of companies that are doing this. Nothing's blown up in scale, obviously, because we would have we would have known about it. But I wonder if if Something in, embedded in the idea of um, of material passports creates the basis for um, data storage. Yeah. So that data storage at at scale um, then provides a means of you know whether it's AI or whether it's actually somebody who's a, a human function. Well, well, people are already doing this. So
1: uh, I mean, this is what I found: having the luxury of writing a book and having a paid to do it, is I was really able to interrogate and, and interview people and an, there are various organisations again in the, the Netherlands where they're already because they've had these low carbon and zero waste targets a lot longer than we have and uh, you know, there's an organisation called Metabolic who um, at the waste zone symposium I curated they showed uh, they, they, had, sorry, they, you know, they showed the evidence but they had mapped the resource potential of the great Amsterdam district and by resource this means the potential of that district to supply material for the construction industry in Amsterdam and there's this whole sort of fab city movement as well so this idea that the city produces the material required to make the stuff for the city and this works really good with big data and the idea of smart cities as well and Bin, which is building information right. modelling, and then you lead on to material passports, which basically mean you can walk as a building owner or end user, you can walk around the building and digitally understand um, what the building's made of and how much of stuff, how many bricks, how many life is So the, the provenance basic. of all of the material. Provenance of it, and crucially, the ability of the stuff within the building to be recycled or reused or kept there because do, don't move it, it's very adaptable and reuse and uh, keep it there for whatever reason. So for me, that's the ability to have big data. We have the infrastructure for that. And therefore, um, cities, for me, are the main thing. Most people in the world live in cities now. Over 50% of the population around the world. 83% of the population in the UK live in cities. And cities are where stuff goes to, gets consumed, used, and thrown away. So cities, for me, are the main... Uh, main vehicles for uh, sir, 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 the idea of a circular city, uh, circular economy, therefore circular cities, and this stuff's being mapped, and so um, you know people are understanding potentials of, a, of material passports. People are understanding the ability of cities to be the resource for our resources for our future. I had a conversation about a year ago with a banker from the A Amro Bank, which is the Dutch national bank and they, they've they just recently built £18 million pounds worth of circle pavilion so this is a building that just um, it, it's uh, an exemplar of uh, closed-loop systems the energy, the water, the food there but also the materials and the way it's built and the way it can be a material store for the future the, and Petra van Heel, the client, the banker he said to my students and I he said, um, we're a finan- financial bank we have £600 billion Uh, euros worth of property investment around the world but we're now also a materials bank and we understand that obviously we can make more out of our investment if at the end of its 25 or 30 year life that building is an asset material asset rather than a deficit rather than the problem of just demolishing and throwing
0: this thing away and getting taxed for doing that So this isn't just being, this isn't crystallising where it is already with the Pioneer company, this isn't crystallising just as a branding opportunity or uh, a spinning of, um, of, of, of an idea in the way that possibly sustainable lint the word sustainable has yeah, exactly. lent itself to greenwash. This is actually, this is people are actually seeing a, a clear financial asset. Um, well, asset I, I actually think
1: for me, uh, the reason why the, just the word the word sustain uh, sorry circular economy are attractive is because it's got the economy word in it. So bankers and uh, accountants and financiers think, hang on, what's this and. Basically, again, it's a gateway. It's a way into the what the capitalist world, consumerist world, to get to turn, yeah, to affect change positively rather than beaten over the head with sustainability, and yeah, basically, I mean, because of, you know, most businesses who are looking into a uh, sort of circular economy. Uh, are the ones that are looking at how to save money and uh, exist and sustain themselves so yeah in, in short if you 're reducing your reliance on raw materials, the acquisition of raw materials which are ever more
0: scarce, whether that 's because of conflict or drought or whatever, well, and, uh, but also that we 're about to go through a period of um, a conscious of, of increased awareness of stranded assets that 's yeah, yeah. going to happen right and so um, Resource security, supply chain security, isn't in the popular minds in the in the mind of uh, business leaders. Isn't going to be just around, oh, some notional idea of one planet, which is very difficult difficult for for um, for most people to kind of um, mm-hmm. to comp- to comprehend. But actually, like, okay, so um, legis- legislation has been passed and we'll, because it has to. Otherwise, <laughs> that dis- this this. Either legislation is passed, or the risk industries um, um, manage out the possibility for um, for extractive industries to take oil and so forth yeah, yeah. Uh, out of the ground, and then there's going to be a very real and clear um, um, demonstration of of what it of what it means to to um, to have um, value in a linear system cur- curtailed. Well, I think I think more and more. Um Businesses are understanding this at a, a big level. I
1: mean, again, because of um, symposia that I organise, you know, I know that Pricewaterhouse, Coopers, PWC, they're all over the circular economy in a very meaningful way, you know, in an authentic way. They're not just uh, doing it just to say, say whatever's fashionable at the moment. They can't get hold of the gear they used to get hold of. And, you know, legislation's kicking in, whether we're in, in um, Europe or not, um, around corporate responsibility. And so, if you practice the old linear method of getting something, making it into something, and throwing it away, you get persecuted mm. at the beginning and end of that as a business. So now, if you can't get away from increased corporate responsibility, and most big companies are seeing it like that, and um, therefore you've got to make it work, and therefore the idea of leasing stuff instead of um, you know buying it as a as an end user, that means that you're the, the company that making. That makes the
0: thing has the responsibility of remaking it as opposed to throwing it away. They'll make more money out of doing that. That reminds me. I know you mentioned that in relation to, um, or the question was raised about Apple um, in your um, in your book, as I recall. But I saw um, some posters as I was driving around London the other day um, for Jaguar Land Rover, who are now advertising. They've got a new brand which is advertising um, direct rental of their um, of their vehicles for the weekend. And I was, I was having a chat um, with my brother, I think it was, that we, I, was, um, I was driving with, and interesting to see what the underlying metrics of, what well, the drivers, rather, of, um, of that were. Was it um, an opportunity to increase market share or a hedge against exactly this? Um, well, in Jaguar, Rover's cases, they had no market
1: share last year, so they're about to go bust, so they've had to reinvent themselves totally, haven't they? Nobody's buying diesel. So, I mean, that's, I mean, back to something you referred to earlier in the conversation. In terms of quick, effective change, uh, the electric vehicle market has gone from nothing to everything. No, who would invest in uh, internal combustion engines now in any degree? No one. So, um, you know, I do know that the cities around the world, that what they're investing in is the infrastructure to charge electric vehicles, and that's the beginning and end of it because they get the plus-plus of... Uh, yeah, that people are sharing vehicles or just leasing them, as you say. But air quality improvements are huge. In the UK, we've got um, uh, we've got a, an energy uh, source that's cleaner and cleaner every year. Wind. So we've got wind and uh, solar panels, and um, so we've got a clean, cleaner, or almost 50% clean mains. Uh, national grid, uh, grid network that we can plug our cars
0: into. Okay, there's the issue of silicon footprint associated with the making of the thing. Uh, there are all kinds of issues, aren't there? So the, the ba- that we have the materials at that scale for all of the batteries. There's the particles that come from the tyres, that, yeah. are, in, um, that yeah. are let into the air. So there are, there are residual um, um, and, and um, serious issues. But also, um, I mean, my, my daughter's
1: 15, and the, the generation just ahead of her, the sort of... 15 to 25 year olds they're not learning how to drive in the uk you know they're not owning cars it's become unaffordable so uh the sharing economy is big now i was you know in terms of uh what are we doing for reusing and stuff like that my daughter lives on Depop, which is the, the, the sort of app to uh sell old old clothes that's what she she makes money out selling her old clothes you know there's a huge network for reuse now that it's just building and building and um, we have an engaged younger generation now which is hugely inspiring for us all because the old, uh, older generations that some people have been beaten on about it for ages getting nowhere now 16 year old greta has sorted it out at one level you know that's a huge movement now that's opened the door and that's ha- that's uh, the way i see it she's opened the door for uh, a whole different
0: way of existing and a lot of people getting her argument understood the um egypt sites um to um to exert try to exert influence we talked about planners, but i guess it's a way that's a proxy for saying the city um, and i understand you've got a new initiative um that's um that's being launched now which
1: yeah well um i've got a eu funded um research project which is um is all about the idea of uh, deconstructing buildings instead of demolishing them and reusing uh, the material from these buildings. And we're working with partners across Europe, people who are actually doing this. So one of the um, outputs from this, um, uh, this research project, which is gonna last for three years, will be a directory of 1,500 suppliers, i.e. people who are doing deconstruction of buildings instead of demolition and reusing these components yeah, in new buildings, and it will also be a toolkit for clients to, in effect, tell them what to do, what to expect. And what we're doing at the University of Brighton is we're, we're hosting next year uh, a school of reconstruction. So that's a that's a summer school for a week um, in Brighton. We're working in partnership with Brighton Hove City Council, and um, we will have team, about 10 teams of students plus experts from... Uh, There's a consultancy in Brussels called Rota, there's another one in Paris called Bellastop, plus others will be running teams who will be working with uh, deconstructed material from uh,
0: Brighton construction sites, and we will be making things out of that material. We've got just as a um, to interject. We've um, we're coming to the end of a meanwhile lease at, on um, on Richardson Yard. It's a shipping container development at um, at the back of Brighton Station where we did the first ever hay base. Um, uh, I'm calling it circular economy loosely yeah. green roof in the sense that it diverted waste agricultural material into, as you know, into um, into building sites. But that's um, they've been uh, the QED the company that managed that have been. Really impressive in the way that they've committed to um, to a care regime for the um, planned care regime for the um, for the green roofs there. But now, as the site's going to be um, it's going to be uh, wound down over a period of time, as I understand it, we've um, we've got a meeting to set up about how we take the green roof off. Oh. And, um, and make use of it so maybe we can feed this into as a
1: place we're, we're looking for real, 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 real cool. things going on in Brighton so that would be amazing to book work, work on that. we actually don't know where we we'll get the material from yet or whatever cool. but that, that's as it should be because it's going to be r- real authentic supplies of stuff so that's it that's exciting um, because uh, the city are also drafting their sector economy route map and that should be published in the spring so um, it'll be great to build that in up. the city and raise awareness of these issues so yeah no, we're really excited about that and it'd be great to get students working with people who are actually doing this reconstruction <laughs> stuff i mean there's one thing that's coming up at the moment is the circular economy is not an excuse to demolish buildings what we're actually saying is that you know buildings y- you should you shouldn't touch
0: stuff if it, you don't demolish just for the sake of it what was the um, the length uh, it you, you once mentioned um in a in a in a talk I heard at Green Architecture Day, um, the average lifespan of a building in London was it something in the region of thirty? Well, they're designed for there's a, it's a business plan that's about thirty years. Ah. So the city of London,
1: it is a thirty-year cycle. So there are buildings going up and down in the city, and going, they tend to look like they're going up more <coughs> than down. But you know, they're demolishing uh, fifteen-story buildings and building fifty-story buildings now. So, <coughs> so but they're always demolishing. They're not and when you see a, sit- a place like the City of London, that generates three quarters of our gross na- national profit, shouldn't be measuring like that. I know, but you know, it's where all the consumption of stuff really mm-hmm. happens. You've got one site right next to another, and one site actually could be providing the resources. One site coming down could be re- providing the resources for the other site going up. At least,
0: like we have the landscape, of, a landscape scale approach to um, to green infrastructure. So. Thinking about um, a landscape scale approach to um, uh, to resource yeah. distribution yeah. And, re- and redistribution.
1: Well, get, I mean the, the techniques called harvest mapping or resource mapping, where you do look if you've got a you know a, 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 an architectural proposal development site um, in a place, you look at getting them the resources from as near near to that place as possible, and you do these resource maps using Google Earth and what have you, where you locate a potential source of stuff, but you need to get. Have a different sense about sensibility about what that stuff could be, and that 's why again, this uh, school of reconstruction that 's what it 's really about is raising awareness of resources that are over- currently overlooked, and that includes human resources. And not wiping out, you know, clear the clear felling of
0: whole communities to create a new development. Social cohesion is something which is completely intangible, right? So um, I know I know Nick Gant, who I'm hoping to invite on to um, to the podcast at some point to talk about his work with the, um, the what's the name of the pub? I mean, the, oh, um, uh, the um, the pub in um, yeah, you know, no, in,
1: in, in Brighton. Uh, <laughs> I to say the Ellie that's in your Yeah, we know the pub you mean. Shouldn't
0: have mentioned that without remember the bevy. The bevy that's it but but thinking about um thinking of thinking about intangibles um intangible um, resources as just as um just as significant yeah. to co evade and support them. yeah um okay so um i think we're coming to the end of the time um that we've got there's a couple of questions that i'd like to um that i'd like to just pop over quick fire ones yeah. so um king for a day what one thing would you change if you could change if you could make if you could um, sign a, a, yeah. a piece of paper and change and change one thing in your field, humans stop burning stuff. Whether that's rainforests or whatever, we don't need to burn anymore. Great. Right. Okay, and three good things. So, one um, kind of cultural product, so a book, a podcast, a film that you find really in- or inspiring, or whatever it might be. One person or social media um, channel to follow for people that um, people that are interested to find out. More and um, my, I come into this from a um, background about trying to promote the use of nature in um, in the built environment. So I'm going to ask you um, one place that you go to immerse yourself in nature, okay. and um, and why. Okay, uh,
1: the book, um, the book's got to be Underland by Robert Macfarlane, um, which is this very beautifully written and very thought-provoking about the stuff below us that we don't consider and one one reason is because it actually talks about um, this idea of the wood wide, wide web which is the mycelium way the woodlands are and mycelium fungi um, are um, connecting uh, so this holds these networks that we haven't got a clue about yeah. that's going on all around us and uh, make us feel suitably humble and I just really liked the fact that he was having to deal with a plant scientist called Merlin. Oh, my God. What was he said? Sheldrake. Yeah, Merlin's <laughs> Drake. I mean, wow. So, but also, the site that the, the, the wood wide web that he talks about is Epping Forest again. Yeah, beautiful. Um, so I really liked the way it took it back to that. Uh, there is another book that needs to mention, which is uh, Given Half a Chance by Ed Davey. Uh, that ten, uh, what is it? Ten, ten Ways to Save the World so I've given that a chance um, yeah, and the person um, there's someone who invented the phrase circular economy who doesn't get enough credit and that's uh, Professor Walter Stahl. and he, um, he's nearly 80 now um, but he's an inc- incredibly modest person who uh, really he was the first person that used the word circular economy and um, yeah, he, des- he deserves a lot of credit, that guy um, this is going to be boring, but the place to immerse myself in nature is obviously up in forest. So, <laughs> um, um, I mean, the, the, the um, 500 year old uh, hornbeam and uh, sweet chestnut, but mainly hornbeam there that you, you can go and uh, lie under a tree or stand next to a tree that helped create the uh, um, Drake's ships and, chips and uh, yeah, the navy that. Um, Defeated the Amada, for example. So he's, I I'm not into defeating people, but um, <coughs> it's to do with the, how far ago, how long ago that was in history, and the fact that a tree's still alive, and that, the fact that it helps support an industry that,
0: uh, uh, without having to give up its life. I really, that's that's something that really the, about your work that always um, that's, that I always find really inspiring. This idea of the historic, the historical availability of um, of of, um, of ideas that can um, that can regalvanise the present. So when you talk about um, there was uh, sweet chestnut industry, forestry industry in um, in historical times in Sussex. Not only does um, reconnecting, uh, seeking to buy materials from um, as I am at the moment for some cladding work that I'm doing from um, from from local um, local millers. Yeah. Um, reduce the you know the the, the carbon the uh, the miles to save yeah, of, of the um, but it also allows you to, to reconnect with with um, with something. It's almost like a romantic, um, but without being um, without being uh, without being throwaway. It's like there's a, there's well, on a one level. It's, it's for one level. It's not romantic because
1: in the case of sweet chestnut, um, the only reason sweet chestnuts here is that Romans brought it with them because it was really durable, they, they, it helped them construct their roads, so we planted vast acres of it, we still have those acres because we were then making charcoal out of it um, and we can now use it to make buildings, which is great but uh, the most amazing thing is that these, these woodlands are working woodlands and if you leave them alone they end up falling over and dying if you work them, they create a greater biodiverse environment than if you leave them alone, so just like the Industrial working of
0: these places creates a more biodiverse environment. I mean, wow! 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 What better, what better um, example of, of human symbiotic relationship yeah. with nature than being productive and building things, yeah. but doing it in a way which is um, which is coexistent rather than just extractive and. Um, yeah restorative. Duncan, I'm going to call it call time there. I guess. Thanks ever so much for um, for taking the time to sit and chat with me. And um, yeah, I look forward to talking with you more about the um, the school of reconstruction and helping us take this green roof off the um, off the development at the back Brilliant. of the plant station.
1: That's exciting. Thank you. Amazing. Brilliant.
0: Thanks for listening. Um, I hope you found this really wide ranging discussion as energising as I did. If you found any value at all in the podcast, please consider liking and sharing on your social media platforms and connecting with us. We're at Making Good Pod on Twitter and Instagram. The spirit of the podcast is to help build resilient networks between people trying to do the right thing right now, but, you know, before those things become mainstream, to help increase the bandwidth for positivity. Uh, Everyone can play a part in that, and I'm really looking forward to connecting with you and hearing what you thought. I'll post some links to the people, books, and um, and other things that um, that Duncan mentioned. That's um, that's all for now. So um, so until next week, uh, have a good one, and we'll see you then.